The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So if you'd open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, those would be our text verses for this evening. And this is one of two places that we have in Scripture that talk about the office of the pastor, I mean, to an extensive degree. There are other places that give us little bits and pieces. But here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1, we're, giving spe- we're given specific details about the pastor. So if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1, the Apostle Paul says, This is a true saying, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop, then, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, those are our verses. We won't be able to cover all of that this evening. We still have a couple of more opportunities to do that. But we're going to look at a part of this for this evening. And I, I, before we get on to something new, let me just catch you up a little bit on what we talked about last week. Uh, first of all, we talked about the terms that are applied to the office. And there are three terms in Scripture that apply to the office of the pastor. Uh, there's only one office, but we do have these three terms to describe it. And the first one is the one that's the most familiar to you, even though, and this is really surprising when you think about it, uh, this term is used only one time in the Scripture, and that, that is in the New Testament, and that is the word pastor. But it's used many times uh, translated as shepherd, and the word that is used in the New Testament is the word poimen, uh, that's translated as shepherd in the book of Ephesians, but uh, excuse me, as pastor in the book of Ephesians, but shepherd in other places. Then the second term is elder. Uh, elders are also known as presbyters, and this is the word that re- uh, refers to the dignity, the wisdom, and the seniority of the office. And then the third term is the term bishop. That's the one we have in our text for this evening. And this is the one that applies to the pastor as he presides over all of the administrative areas of the church. It's also translated in Scripture as the word overseer. So the pastor is the overseer of the church. So we have those three terms, the pastor, the elder, and bishop, uh, not three different offices, but one office and three terms used to describe it. Secondly, we talked about the call to the office. Uh, The pastor must be called to this. He's not self-appointed. The church is not his church. It's Christ's church. And Christ is the one, God is the one who appoints the man to the office. Now, there are some pastors, and I've known of some, that think that the church is their church. Uh, I knew a pastor in Virginia 
who said, this is my church and don't you ever forget it. And so he ruled everything, he controlled everything, and it was his way or the highway. But the church is uh, not the pastor's church. The, the Lord chooses the pastor. It's not a, a job that he chooses as a career, but he is chosen, chosen uh, by God. Uh, the pastor then receives that call from God, but that's not the only call that he gets. He also must have a call from the church. And that's because he can't force himself into a church. The church has to agree that he has been called. Now, the church might be wrong about that, and sometimes they are. But uh, regardless of that, there's nobody that's going to step in to pastor a church where the people aren't willing and they won't follow the man. I mean, that's important. We're never going to get anything done for the people or done for the Lord if the people won't follow the pastor. So he has a divine call from God, and then he has a confirming call that comes from the church. Well, I want to continue this evening, and I'm going to go on to give you some more information. Uh, The scriptures tell us more about the pastor, and this is good information because it helps the church to evaluate the man to see if he really is called. It helps the man to recognize himself, whether he, his calling is correct or he has the calling that he thinks that he does. And so the scripture gives us these different qualifications. Now, thirdly, this evening, we want to look at the duties of the office. And if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 4, here's where we learn something about the duties of the office, that God calls men to minister and then he gifts them for the duties that are essential for the church. So in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse number 11, it says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, some of those offices that you see listed in verse number 11 are temporary offices. We don't any longer have apostles. We no longer have prophets at least in the sense that we're given new revelation from God that's outside what we've already been given in the scriptures. Uh, We don't have evangelists like the ones that are in the New Testament. Now, I'm not saying that we couldn't have those kinds of evangelists, but I don't know of any that actually perform the same functions that evangelists did in the New Testament. So I really don't see that office uh, operating in the church today, even though I think that it probably could. But we do have pastors And we do have teachers. And I think in this particular passage that the teachers is also primarily referring to the pastor. So what does the pastor do according to these scriptures? Well, his first duty is to instruct the church that he is a, he's a teacher. And no matter else, what else that he does, if he doesn't do this, then the pastor would be a failure in his duty. The scripture says that he must equip the saints. He's to help them to grow or as the word here used is perfecting, which means to bring them into maturity in the faith. And that's what he does by preaching the word of God. Well, teaching and preaching are not exactly the same thing. They overlap. Uh, Preaching is for exhortation. It's for evangelism. It's for encouragement. While teaching is uh, more to bring the believer uh, into full discipleship, showing him the commandments of Christ, teaching those commandments... And that's what the Great Commission tells us to do. It tells us to go. It tells us to evangelize. It tells us to baptize people and then to teach them to observe all things that uh, God has commanded us. So that's what the pastor is to do. He's to teach the Word of God. 
Now, the pastor then instructs in the doctrines of the faith, and that means that he must not always confine himself to simple doctrines, simple doctrines of the gospel. Now, one thing that you need to know for sure, there's no doubt about this, you need to know how to be saved, but you also have to be taught how to go on to maturity in the faith. Now, there are many ministries that hover around the simple gospel, and they deal a lot on soul winning and Christian living, and certainly those things are important. We do need those things, but if that's all that you ever get, you're never going to grow in the faith. Now, there's more in the Word of God than those subjects, and you'll never be grounded and you'll never be able to appreciate the the work that God has done in salvation for you to the full extent unless you hear and you understand and you learn all the doctrines of the faith. And so that's what the pastor is to do. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul uh, talked about returning to Thessalonica to finish what he'd started there. And his purpose in going back was to perfect the people in their faith. They were lacking in the faith. This is what he said, For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now, obviously, Paul is not speaking there about saving faith because there's nothing that he could do to give them more saving faith. Once you're saved, you're saved. So we must be talking here about the doctrines of the faith or taking these people on to maturity in the faith. And I think that we can see in letters like Paul wrote to Romans and to the, uh, wrote to the Ephesians that New Testament Christians, I think that they were probably far ahead where of where most of us are in churches today. I mean, even with all of our tricks and our tools and our computers and our ease of finding information, I think that we actually do come behind most of those New Testament Christians. And the amazing thing to me is that there are some people that want to stay that way. There are people who think we don't need any more doctrine. We don't need to be taught anything else. And these are people that have their felt needs And if the pastor doesn't meet those needs, then he is vamoose. They're not interested in the other doctrines of the faith. And we notice as we read the New Testament, Paul writing to churches, he concentrates on hard doctrine. The apostle Peter said, even he said, that there are some things that Paul wrote that are very hard to understand. But those New Testament Christians must have studied those things They must have learned them. They must have leaned hard on the Holy Spirit to show them the truth because it seems that they understood in few words what Paul had to say where it it takes us us mountains of argument to get through what he says in those two, two particular books. I mean, how many people argue over Romans 8 and 9 and over Ephesians 1 and 2? I mean, those, those are chapters that are endless sources of argument And yet the Roman church and the Ephesian church must have not had a great difficulty of understanding those things. And I think maybe the reason for that is they were willing to take what Paul had to say at face value. And that's something that we don't see a lot of pastors giving us today. They don't like to take things simply at face value, what Paul said, and so they try to explain away 
what Paul so clearly says in those four particular chapters that I've just mentioned in Romans and Ephesians and others as well. So what they try to do is to make Paul say things that he didn't mean, and all that does is cloud the truth of the Word of God. But that's another argument for another time, so we won't spend a lot of time on that. But what we do need is pastors that tell us more than they've been telling. Instruction is a vital ministry for the pastor, and the people depend on that. And without that, you'll have weak Christians, and consequently, you have weak churches. So this is what we're determined to do. We're determined to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. If there's a doctrine that we've overlooked, then you let me know, and we'll talk about it sometime or another. Now, obviously, we can't talk about all doctrines in one service, but over the course of these past almost 11 years now, we have covered a great deal of the Word of God in many of the doctrines of the faith and some of the very hard doctrines of the faith. Now, secondly, it is the pastor's job to shepherd the church. He's to shepherd it. Now, shepherding also involves teaching, but it involves a lot more than that. It's a broader term than just instructing the people. Now, I can instruct you in the Word of God by reading the Bible. I can give you some facts about it. I can give you academic information about it. But if that's all you need, I can loan you some books. You can come into my library. You can read some of my books if you like to do that. But the church is more than that, and shepherding for a pastor is more than that. Now, I like what someone said to me a few weeks ago. Uh, this was someone that uh, was getting ready to come into the church as members, and, and this person said to me, our family needs a shepherd. Our family needs a shepherd. Now, here's what you can do. You can attend church. You can come to the services. You can listen to the preaching. I'll help you all that I can. And I don't know if any, I think everybody here just about is a member tonight. I mean, I, I would help anybody that I can, but I don't really shepherd anyone but those who are members of the church. That's my job, to shepherd them. And that's why you need to be, people need to be a member of the church so they get that relationship with the shepherd. Now, the shepherd's more than the teacher. He's a modeler. The shepherd is close to you. He gives his life for you, so to speak. This is what 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 says. So being affectionately desirous of you, Paul says that we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but our own souls because you were dear unto us. Isn't that a great scripture? I mean, what if we all had that feeling that we're just dear to one another? And this is good because you're not just a bunch of students in a classroom. You're a part of my life, and I want to be a part of your life. And our relationship to each other in this church is a partnership. Now, later on, I'm going to tell you, not in this sermon, but in a later one, I'm going to tell you what I don't want to be to you as a pastor. But for now, this is what I want you to know, that I want you and your children to consider me to be someone that you want to see because I want to see you. Well, how else does a pastor shepherd the flock? Well, he feeds them the word of God. We've already learned that. But as he does so, he guards and he protects the flock. Do you remember what Paul said to those Ephesian elders? We talked a little bit about it last week in Acts chapter 20. He told them, he said, Now, as soon as I leave here, there are going to be some people come in. Grievous wolves will enter in, not sparing the flock. Isn't that interesting what the Word of God has to say about a false teacher? He called, the Scriptures call them grievous wolves. P. 
Peter said that they're wells without water. They're clouds that are carried about with a tempest. He said the mist of darkness is reserved for them forever. Now what the pastor wants to do is to keep you away from those kinds of people. And yet do you know that there are pastors that invite heresy into the pulpit? I mean, you may wonder, why, why is it that the Berean Baptist Church is not ecumenical? Why, why do we separate from the different churches that are in town and we don't hook up with all these other churches to, to join in with them and all the things that they're doing? Why don't we do that? Well, we don't do that because I don't like the idea of inviting the wolf to come in and lie down with the sheep. I'm not going to bring wolves in here to speak to our people as if it really doesn't matter. Folks, we separate on doctrine. The Word of God matters to us. Now, that, it's the Word of God that rules our lives. So we're not interested in anything else but truth. I mean, all else is vanity, according to the Scriptures. It's useless. It's all temporal. We don't need any of that stuff. The Word of God says that we are to separate from the world. And, and if that means we separate from everybody around us because we want to stay pure to the Word of God, we'll do it. So be it. Paul said, come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. Well, how do we separate? And, and this is important to me because as the pastor, this is what I need to teach you. We first of all separate on the name. I mean, we have the name Baptist out on the sign and I've told you about this before, that name Baptist out there differentiates us in our doctrine. And so we start with that, that we, we, we believe the doctrines that are behind that name. Now, of course, we believe that they're one and the same with the New Testament. Now, you can decide whether a generic type of Christianity and a generic church is the best kind of church to join. If you think that, then that's the church that you ought to join. But I think that it's my responsibility to shelter you from all of that. I want to keep you away from ecumenical Christianity. I want to keep you away from the wolves that can destroy your faith. And that's what a pastor is to do. I was asked by a parent not long ago, how long should we shelter our children? And I said, as long as you possibly can. The world will get to them soon enough. So you shelter them as long as you possibly can. And that's what I want to do as the pastor. I want to shelter you as long as I possibly can. As long as God gives me breath, we're going to keep out errors of false pretend Christianity from this church. Now, thirdly, it's the pastor's duty to administer in the church. So the pastor is the bishop. He's the overseer. And this is what I'm to do. I'm to watch over all the functions of the church, all the ministries. Now, we'll see a little bit later on how that you are to respond to that kind of leadership, but the pastor is the one who's responsible for everything that goes on to the church, in the church. Now, I do believe that I'm allowed to delegate, and that's why pastors have assistants or they assign work to others, and part of equipping others for ministry is to give them some hands-on experience. So all of the ministries of the church, such as music and uh, the pioneer clubs, ladies' ministries, men's ministries, all of that is under the purview of the pastor. But I'll let you in on something. I don't want to do all those things. I don't want to do all those things myself. Now, here, here's what happens in many churches, and I think that a pastor deludes himself if he believes that he's better at everything than everybody else. That's simply not true. We have our strengths and our weaknesses, and so the purpose of delegating is to find people that can do things well. Now, the pastor has to be responsible for it all. He has to look over it all, but he delegates that 
responsibility to other people because they're just better at things than he is. I guarantee you, I can't sit back there and do what Bob and Steve do. I'd make a mess of things if I did that. And then there are other things in the church. I mean, there's just things that the pastor is not talented enough to do without some kind of help, and so that's why we delegate. But the pastor is the one that oversees it all. So for those of you that are helpers and you have jobs in the church, do a good job because that looks good on me. I'm the one that has to answer for everything that goes on here. So do a good job and we'll all get along fine. So those are the primary duties of a pastor, instructing, shepherding, administering. Everything that we do is going to fall under one of those three categories. Now, fourthly, and uh, this is one of the critical things. They're all critical, but this is extremely important. And that's what the Word of God has to say about the character of the pastor. Now, verse number two says, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Now, the first qualification that Paul gives us in this second verse is that a pastor must be blameless. And that means that he's not to have things in his life that in his personal life that bring reproach upon Christ and upon his office. So that means that there is to be no overwhelming sinful defect in his life. Now what a pastor has to do, he has to guard himself from falling. And why is that? Oh, the pastor is Satan's biggest target. Now if you think that you have a hard time with the devil, uh, resisting temptations because there's so many... Get into the shoes of a pastor for a day or two and see how many things that a pastor is tempted in and the way that the devil attacks a pastor. And so uh, what a pastor has to do, he has to be very, very careful and, and be more meticulous about First Thessalonians 5, verse 22, where it says to abstain from all appearance of evil. Because even if I don't do something wrong, somebody's going to think, well, the appearance is that you're doing something wrong. Or they'll bring out something, some kind of charge against the pastor. Everything that I do is scrutinized. So even if I don't do things wrongly, people are going to look at that and they'll look at the appearance. So the pastor has to guard himself uh, against that because when he falls, when a pastor falls, it has more effect on the flock than any other person that's in the church. I mean, it's the pastor when he falls that gives more reason for, for people to blaspheme the name of God than anybody else. Now, you take a look at how the, how the world treated the charismatic scandals that were in the 80s and 90s. I mean, there was no mercy for that. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe, uh, maybe it was last week, and I'm not sure, but I talked to you about Ted Haggard, who was the uh, uh, president of the National Association of Evangelicals, and he was caught in a homosexual relationship and taking crystal meth. Well, people have a right to be angry about those things. They have a right to be angry about pedophile priests in the Roman Catholic Church. They have a right to be angry about those things. But the sad part about it is they lump all preachers and all pastors into that group like you're all just alike. And so what a pastor has to do is be very careful not to provide ammunition for the cannons of all the critics. So we have to be very careful about our lives. And I think it's really sad that there are churches that are not taught well on this issue 
Because you can find men that 30 days ago were dragging morality through the mud and they've been restored to their positions in churches. Now, folks, those are disqualifying sins. And Baptists sometimes are involved in that. Now, there's a fundamental uh, Baptist ministry in Florida. I won't give you the name of it. But the pastor of that of a large church there retired. And it was found out later that he was molesting children. And what the church did, they put him in another position inside of the church. They just swept it under the rug, and then they sent that man as a missionary to Germany. And later when things kind of broke open and, and uh, started to fall apart, they, they brought him back to the United States in order to be tried, and I think that he died before that trial was able to take place. But that's shameful, shameful for people to do things like that. But that stuff goes on all the time, and Baptists are not immune to it. And Baptist pastors are huge targets. And those kinds of things are things that will destroy God's church. So a pastor must be careful to be blameless. Now, next, he is to be a one-woman man. Here it says he's to be the husband of one wife. And if we were reading from the Greek text tonight, it actually says one-woman man. Now, there's a lot that goes into this subject. I mean, for instance, we could talk about whether it's right for a pastor to be divorced. And that would be a, a good subject for us to take up, and we'd be warranted in talking about that. But this text is not talking particularly about divorce, and neither is it speaking about polygamy when it says one woman man. It's not talking about polygamy. And the reason it's not is because in the Roman society, polygamy wasn't practiced. And so you couldn't be a member of the church being a polygamist, much less be a pastor of a church. So it's not talking about that. But what it's speaking of is the devotion of a man to his wife, that he's to love his wife, he's to stay with his wife, he's to honor his wife, and he's not to have affections for anyone else but his wife. Now, is that hard for anybody to understand? Here is one of the worst or hardest things in many churches, and that's the sexual temptation that goes along with the pastorate. And I'll tell you why. It's because we deal with a lot of emotional, unstable people, and there are pastors that take advantage of that, and they fall into sin. Now, pastors have abused their office, and they end up in affairs. I remember a few years ago that there were three pastors that I knew. They would preached revivals in our church in Kentucky. And these were all three of these men in a, just a short amount of time. All three of them got involved in affairs with women in their church. And, and here's something else. Uh, a man can stay married to his wife, but that doesn't necessarily make him a one-woman man. I mean, uh, there was a famous independent fundamental Baptist pastor in Chicago that had an affair with his secretary for over 20 years while still married to his wife. I don't think you'd call him a, a one-woman man. And so without even breaking up a marriage, a pastor can have a, a roving predatory eye. Now, in case you're wondering about this, I am having an affair with my secretary. Um, it's a, it's a sordid affair. It's been going on for 39 years, not likely to end it anytime soon. Uh, so you can protest about that, but that affair is going to keep going. I'm sorry. But a pastor does have to be an example. Uh, his wife is the only one for him, and so his thoughts and his actions must be only for his wife. Well, you might wonder when you read this, does this mean that a pastor 
must be married? Must he have a wife? Is that a requirement? Well, if so, then Paul was a bad example. Uh, Paul wasn't married. And in 1 Corinthians, he encouraged uh, people. He said, if it's possible, it's better for a a minister to remain unmarried if he can. Um, He didn't demand celibacy for the pastorate, but he didn't and that's obvious from this particular text, but he didn't demand, demand that they be married either, and that's clear from 1 Corinthians. So um, if, he, if, he, if he has to be married, I mean, if that's the, the tack that someone's going to take on 1 Timothy 3, uh, if they say, well, this scripture says a man has to be married, then you better look again at verse number 4 because then it also says he must have children. So you'd have to exclude somebody that didn't have children. Are there advantages for a pastor being married? Well, of course there would be. Uh, We have to deal with marriage issues. We have to do some counseling in the marriage area. Uh, It can keep a single man from being tempted if he's if he's married. Uh, That that's that's those are all advantages. But according to Paul, there are some disadvantages as well. So you have to weigh both sides of that. But there's nothing wrong with a man being a pastor if he's not married, and certainly nothing wrong if he is. Now, thirdly, a pastor must be temperate. You ever heard of the temperance movement? Well, the word vigilant means temperate, and it means primarily here abstaining from drinking wine. And so we could combine that with the first part of uh, verse number three, not given to much wine, put all that together. And, And I don't care how you look at this. There's no way that you can get around it that Paul says that pastors cannot drink alcohol. And I don't want to make this a sermon about the evils of alcohol tonight and the abuses of alcohol, but I don't think that there is a God-fearing, God-honoring person that can make any kind of argument about the merits of drinking alcohol. I mean, it's fraught with all kinds of temptations, all kinds of uh, problems. They're, they're just, it's just a bad testimony all the way around. Uh, there's, I can't see how any Christian could defend that. But especially... Pastors have to be wary of it. Now, in the book of Leviticus, it tells us that priests, when they were going about their duties, they they weren't allowed to drink alcohol whenever they were performing the functions of a priest. And somebody might come back and say, oh, but they did drink it at other times. Well, you can argue that if you want. Regardless of what's done in the Old Testament, Paul slams the door on it right here in the New Testament for pastors of, of churches. Now, remember this. The Word of God teaches that every believer is a believer priest. You are performing the functions of a priest wherever you are. You're a priest of God. You know that? That's what we call the priesthood of the believer. All of us are priests of God. And so we have to be careful everywhere we are, every member of the church, wherever you are, because you're a priest of God. And that means you have to watch your life every single day. Fourthly, a pastor must be prudent. That's the word sober that we have in the text. He must be prudent. Now, that doesn't mean sober like, like uh, not being drunk. It means sober but be, uh, as being of sound mind. It means using reason well, not likely to jump on the bandwagon to some stupid thing in a hurry, but thinking things through. That's what a pastor is to be sober and it means also taking God's word seriously. Now, you know, I'm not against saying something funny in the pulpit every now and then. But I tell you this, I don't think the pulpit is the place for a jokester. Now, in the past few years, 
I've noticed this, that Bible colleges keep turning out a lot of preachers that think that joking their way through sermons is the way to go. And have you ever wondered why people like that kind of preaching? You know, that's very popular. It's, it's entertaining, and it draws crowds. You know why people like that? Because it's of the flesh. It's appealing to the flesh. Satan can use those kinds of things to take your focus off of the Scriptures. I mean, you think about it. How many, how many sermons have you remembered for the content, the text that was preached, rather than the jokes that were told? I remember a few years ago, we took some of the men and we went to a conference down in Fresno where almost the entire theme of one uh, preacher's sermon was a joke. A joke that he told. Some of you guys that went, you remember this? I'm sure you do. It was a joke he told about an exploding septic tank on an RV. Everybody remember that? The ones that you went? How many of you remember the text that he preached from? I don't. I don't remember anything but the sewage that got blown all over him. That's all that I remember. Well, I do know this, that the conferences that we go to now, I remember a lot of the sermons that are preached. I remember some of them preached five or six years ago because they were good, sound expositions of the Word of God. They concentrated on what was being said in the Scripture. And there's a joke maybe here and there, but that's not the thing that I remember. I remember what's said about the Word of God. Now, let me finish up then with this, this uh, last one. I'll kind of let you go a little bit early tonight. And that is a pastor must be a gentleman. Verse number 2 says that he should be a man of good behavior. Now, that means that he's to be a man of manners. Let me tell you something that's practically ignored in the modern church today. I looked up to see what, what, what do others have to say about this? What do they think about what Paul says here about good behavior. And you know that almost without exception, when I looked this up, almost all of the commentators had something to say about the way that a pastor dresses, about his attire. How should a minister dress? Now, it includes other things, but I'll stick with this one. How should a minister dress? You think that's important? No, I think it's important. Uh, The Bible teaches how a man should dress, I think. Now, here's one thing. Uh, No matter uh, anything else, uh, I I think it's very important that that no matter where the the pastor is, that he looks the part. I mean, for the most part, he looks the part. So you're not going to catch me in a pair of Speedos or 90% undressed at the beach. And I'm sorry for putting that visual in your mind, but you're you're not going to find me like that. Um, You know, but I know plenty of young guys that this is no problem for them. They look like heathens when they're away from the church, and some of them look like heathens when they're in the pulpit. What about dress in the pulpit? Where is there need for more decorum than in the pulpit? Now, if you come on Wednesday nights, those of you that do, you know that uh, we've, we've kind of dressed down a little bit, and I may not wear a suit and a tie on Wednesday night, but you'll find me neat and clean. On Sundays, you're not going to see me in the pulpit unless I'm dressed like this. I'm not going to be dressed like I'm going to a nightclub. But I watch some of those guys on TV in their, in their tattered blue jeans and with holes in their clothes and shabby shirts, and they have the idea that the thing to do is to be hip. That's the thing that's going to attract the crowds, be hip. But I look into the Old Testament, and, and I see the way that God was so meticulous about telling the priest how they were to dress 
And do you know that everything that a priest wore in the Old Testament was a picture of something about Jesus Christ? That the white linen that they wore, that was representative of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The blue that was on the ephod of the high priest, that represented royalty, and it represented heaven. And do you remember uh, how that the high priest had a garment, his garment had bells on the fringe of the garment, and that how uh, those bells were to be constantly ringing? And that was a picture, I mean, showing that it was busy. And that was a picture that Christ is busy, always busy, never stops interceding for us. All of that's a picture of Jesus Christ. He had a band that he wore on his forehead that said, Holiness to the Lord. And so the garments that he wore were very important. There was no haphazardness about his dress. Now, if a priest in the Old Testament that pictured Christ without really knowing all that we know, I mean, most of these things were, were a mystery to him, what, what he wore all that for. But God knew what it was for, and God brings it out in the New Testament, what these things are all about. Well, if that priest who really didn't know all that he was doing would still do what God told him to do, what do you think a pastor in a church, in a New Testament church, ought to think about the very same things? How do we represent Jesus Christ? So when I stand up, on the Lord's day to preach, I'm going to be conscious of the one that I represent. Now, I know that a pastor is not mandated anywhere in the New Testament to wear a particular type of clothing. Uh, we, We don't have to wear a dress like the Pope, and we don't have to wear a pointed hat or anything like that. We're not told about those things, but I don't think that we have to stretch things to say that there ought to be some dignity in this office. Now, dress changes over the century, and we recognize that. It does change. But we also know this. We still recognize the difference between formal and casual, don't we? We still recognize that. It doesn't matter how the dress changes. We know which is formal and which is casual. There's no argument about that. And so I think a pastor has to match what uh, should match the occasion. Uh, This is not just a haphazard thing that we do. And so you're not going to see me come and dress in jeans. Why not? Because I don't think that's dignified enough for the office. Now, the, past, uh, the, the president, when well, if you, you're not going to go meet the president in a pair of blue jeans, are you? And, and the president doesn't meet foreign dignitaries in his swimming trunks. Why? Because that's not dignified. That's, that's not appropriate for the office. You know, I'm old enough to remember, and most of you are too, when Jimmy Carter was the president. Remember the good old days, the misery index? Y'all remember that? That was the good old days. Well, you know, when Jimmy Carter became the president, one of the things that they complained about him was because he was often seen in the White House in a sweater without a suit and a tie. Anybody remember that? I mean, that, that, he was criticized a lot for the way he dressed. Well, after President Reagan came into the office, some of the White House staff was asked, from their perspective, what was the difference between President Carter and President Reagan? And you know what they said? Dignity. They didn't say anything about politics. That wasn't their point. They said dignity. And they said when President Reagan came in, he restored dignity to the office. Now, folks, if people can see that with the president, what do you think about the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings? What about him? I, I, I'm here representing him, so I can't look like I've been in a bar fight. Now, the Bible tells us that 
Christ will return with thousands of his saints, ten thousands of his saints. We were at that this morning. He'll return with ten thousands of his saints. What do you think they're going to be wearing? Overalls? No. They'll come in the righteousness, the linen, white linen righteousness of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, I went up to Windsor to hear a guy preach. And Lino will remember this, that the first thing I said when this fellow came out to preach, I said, that guy looks like he rolled down the hill behind the church. I mean, he came out, and, and I, I suppose he was clean, but he had a black polo shirt on. It, you know, it was, to me, it didn't look very appropriate. It looked kind of dirty to me. He had on a pair of black jeans and steel-toed boots. And I just thought, what, what about the dignity? What happened to the dignity of the office? Well, the pastor is to be a gentleman. He's to look the part, and he is to act the part. Now, he needs to look the part because what he does reflects the importance of what he does. And how are the people going to think that what I do is important if I don't look like I think it's important? Now, you might think, well, that, that's such a small little detail. I mean, what do you talk about things like that for? These are the kinds of things that I, I think they're important. And, and, if, and if we don't watch the small things, it's not long before you get to the big things and it all gets torn down. So I think we have to be careful about it. So, you know, I don't like jokesters. I don't like hipsters. Now, one of the things I do on Sunday mornings when I want to get my blood going in the morning before I come to church, I turn on the TV and I watch Joseph Prince. Anybody ever watch him? I mentioned him before. But I watch Joseph Prince. He, he's a pastor of this huge church in Singapore. He's a little over 50 years old, almost the same age as I am. But he dresses like a 14-year-old teenager that just came from the skateboard park. And, and I, I just, I don't understand that. Uh, where's the dignity of the office? So I don't like jokesters. I don't like hipsters. I think you ought to speak and look the part. Well, that's about all I have time for tonight. There, there's still some other important qualifications that we need to look at, and I'm taking my opportunity. So for a couple more weeks, we're going to talk about things like this, and uh, we'll see what the pastor is supposed to do. Now, I just hope that I can live the part, and I do hope that I'm not sinking fast and fading fast, and I'll have to let you be the judge of that because uh, I don't want to fail in the area of humility either. You know, I think this is true, that the pastor can't always be the best judge of the job that he's doing. So I just leave that up to you. And if you're ready to fire me, then okay, all right. My wife said she wasn't going back to Kentucky, so I'll have to find something else to do. I don't know. So uh, uh, this is important to me, and uh, I like to talk about it. I don't talk about it too much. As I said at the beginning, um, when I keep laying it out here in front of you, I always give you something to compare me to, and that might not always be a good thing. So I don't want you to think too hard about this stuff. Just write it down and file it away somewhere and say, I, I told you this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to preach your word. It is very important to us, and we want to be the kind of people that don't bring shame upon your name. We don't want to defame the office that uh, you've appointed us to. We thank you for putting us into the ministry. As the Apostle Paul said in First Timothy chapter 1, he thanked you for putting him into the ministry. And it's the greatest thing that we can do, uh, greatest job that there is. And I thank you for it, Lord. And I pray that it's a benefit to your people. Bless us tonight. We give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. 
If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.